Hello and welcome to IRC Book Club. How's it going, MP? Yes, good. I'm fine as well, thanks, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so we're on Selling to the C-Suite by Nicholas C. A.C. Reed. Uh, and Stephen J. Bistritz, Ed, which was a joke I cracked last week and Mike didn't laugh at either. Um, we've How many been chapters are we going to cover today, Jonathan? Two. Two chapters. Chapters. Okay. Uh, and, and the two you know, chapters we covered. What's about this book, actually? We didn't mention it last week. Is the appendix is excellent. Oh, wow. Well, I think the, the reality is we will co- be covering in probably ep- the fourth episode of the show. Like the appendix. We'll be talking about the appendix as a chapter in and of itself. Brilliant. Really good. There's the an awful lot to cover. There's information, f- the email templates, the letter templates. Brilliant. Very it's what, it's one to go out and buy this one. I would say so. Seems quite expensive for thirty-two US dollars. I don't know what we paid for it on Amazon, um, but it is one to go out and buy. It. Nick, if you're listening, mate, get in a studio and record this as an audio book, and we will tell you when we interview you on the I show. Know you, his friend. You should refer to his mate. I presume well, he's you know. Australian. Oh, is he? Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, do you not know? It's in the diary for us to record this at ridiculous o'clock. Is it? When, we, when he comes on the show, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. So, here's the three. Chapter three, understanding what executives want. Do you ever see that movie with Mel Gibson, What Women Want? Yes, I did actually. I couldn't, it made me chuckle. I thought, yes, what what executives want. It would make a nice romantic comedy. I don't think it would make a romantic comedy, though you and I would watch it. Yeah, probably, and a couple of other nerdy sales guys. Okay. So what's interesting about this chapter is he talks about research. I think the ability to research is lost in today's modern society. Go on. Well, I think that we've had people work here and ask them to do research. Where did you do your research, Google? Google? Google. Yes, I concur completely. And I also think that with as much information out there as there is, it's actually quite difficult to do research. I also think that, as we discussed last week, not many of the C-level execs probably either A, have, or B, if they do have, run their own social media profile. So actually doing the research is probably quite difficult. Whereas in the 80s or 90s or 2000s... But do you know what that's born of, Michael? When we got our degrees, when I got my degree, if you researched for an essay or a piece of coursework, you had to go to the library. And in the library, you had to understand how to find things. That's my point. In a completely different paradigm. You had to learn how to find an article in a journal without just putting some keywords into a browser and knowing that somewhere along that result of resultant list would come the search. So it therefore taught us to think differently in terms of how we research things. Well, that's things. why this is a good chapter, because it, yes. it tells 
there's probably research week how to do good research. And he says here, actually, it, you know... There and no let's get books. it right, Price. They give, they give degrees out to anyone nowadays. When we did oh, them, my, they were... My degree, no, when my, we did them, they were hard to get. They weren't. My degree was a joke. <laughs> Honestly, the University of Hull, I don't know if any of you listen to Book Club, it's unlikely. The people that you gave the degrees to was ludicrous. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Yeah, the University of Huddersfield gave me one. Anyway, so we're on this chapter... Educated men us. So we're on this, so on this chapter about, about research. There's loads of good stuff here. There's one idea he gives. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I wouldn't do it. He says, take your smartphone along to friendly customers and get their permission to film them talking about your solutions in action. Post these blogs on the business Facebook page. You can run alongside your personal Facebook page. Yeah, that's all right. Um, I, I actually know somebody who's done that recently. Oh, do you? My, uh, my wife did that. Did it work? Uh, she has used it. She went to see some existing customers and got them to wax lyrical about the technology, and then she used that video at a conference Did you sell anything as part of the of pitch. Quite probably. That's good then, isn't it? Um, the problem with it is it looks shite. Because she's done it on her iPhone. Done it on her iPhone, doesn't understand the basics of exposure, and in the current noisy social world that we live in, that kind of shite content doesn't come through because it looks shite. What do you make of this on page 57? As you know, you reckon you know a bit about LinkedIn. Um, and it talks about posting stuff. And it says, I'll, I'll read it very quickly. Uh, it talks about posting stuff and it says, you may not get immediate results. After people receive your posts six or more times, you'll start to make a dent. People will see you. Your network will comment on your posts and share them with others. Now that you're in syndication, where we've commented and sharing, you'll be tempted to reply to comments as they come what in. What page is this, Don't, Mike? 57. It's saying you'll be tempted to reply to comments as they come in. Don't. I think you did have to reply to comments on LinkedIn. Or do you not? Uh, um, blog a different topic each week, really. I'll tell you what I'm, I, I, I'm nervous of here. I think this is very well-intentioned. But as a business that does a lot of social media, there is so much noise out there. And you could get so lost down a social rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, in order to, in inverted commas, do effective research or stand out. And, uh, you know, he's talking about here, read your magazines, definitely. Read your business periodic business periodicals, definitely. Profile client current affairs on the internet, definitely. Get to symposiums, conferences, learn the issues, learn the jargon. Absolutely. If you aspire to create value for C-Suite, be a trusted advisor and engage executives early in the buying cycle. This is your price of admission. I think that's so true. But I'll tell you now, I don't think a lot of our candidates and a lot of the people we engage with are really doing that. Well, They're not think like that. No. And, and one of the things I found as a business leader and you found as a business leader is the amount of people we've sat there. You know, we used to have a subscription to The Economist and the Harvard Business Review in the office, and you turned around to me one afternoon and said, Johnny, you used to cancel that, mate. It's just... Well, the, in fairness, I didn't read it, nor did you. I did. Well, it didn't look like you did. But I did. did I, read the, I read The Economist every week digitally, and well, I read it every week. morning. I read The Economist well, every morning. Ugh, it's bollocks. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because I've been reading Selling to the C-Suite this week. But I actually religiously read, read The Economist every week. Well, I don't. Uh, but I think his point is is about knowing the market, isn't it? And and, it, and if you read the previous on um, chapter one... Know your stuff, this, know this, your this world. His point would be, he would say, if you know what's going on in your market, then at that point you can add value to your client. And if you can add value to your client, that's when you become a trusted advisor. You, could be, you become a trusted advisor because you're credible. 
I think what's very interesting is, it, on, on, this is on page 59, so this is point three of this particular section. It says, adopt a routine. And it goes on about it, and, he, and, and, and further on down he goes, naturally, it needs to be outside your prime selling hours when customers are most responsive to calls. I just read that and thought, this guy is on it. Yeah, bang on. Absolutely right. 8.30, he doesn't say it actually. 8.30, get on the phone. Don't be sat there, re- stood there, sat there. Re- oh, I'm, research- I'm reading The Economist. No, do you do that on Saturday morning with your co- Saturday coffee. Brilliant. Uh, ask lots of questions. You know, I think that's always, you know, overlooked really. When you're sat opposite someone, ask them good questions. Now, that takes you into a different uh, subject area, actually, which is not many of the candidates are actually that good at asking questions. But, nonetheless... Yeah, and he talks, he talks about that later on, about actually going into the meeting itself. And actually, in later chapters, he alludes to sort of almost having canned questions that you would use that are quote-unquote good questions, which I really don't like the idea no. of, no, I really don't like that. Shut up and listen. Yeah, but I think there's some good questions. Like the, like the Samaritan's good question was, how do you mean? Yes. There's some which are canned good questions, but you can just use over and over. Absolutely. Or, I did quite like that. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, what he, I, I interpreted that as canned questioning, and I think more's the point is shut up and start listening to people. So I like this bit. The value of research, I'm on page 61, it, it, and this is a reference to the appendix, actually. He says, in the appendix is a guide to client discovery. And I read it, and it's absolutely okay. <laughs> it's absolutely Okay. It's a bit dated, isn't it? What, is Guide to Client Discovery? I thought it was a bit dated, yeah. I'll tell you what, though, Pricey. I'll tell you what. If you were going to go and see a customer tomorrow and you went through that checklist as part of your client discovery, it's not a bad starting place. Yeah, it's not a bad starting place. I think I, I think I would rewrite it and augment it with some more current stuff. But I've got to say, for all, for all the stuff that's out there in social media, do you know what my what, do you know what my um, my client discovery is often? What I often do, I find somebody up else that knows them really well. Let's go about them. Yeah, that helps. The best way. There's all sorts. Depend. It's it so situationally the, specific, depending it, on the company. It see. frustrates when the candidates don't do it when they've got a second interview. Yeah. They don't have a call with the person they had a first interview with. I'm seeing a client this week, all things being equal, later on in the week, where the chairman has introduced me to the CEO. Now, you, if you don't phone the chairman... And I'm going to ring the chairman CEO and say, listen, I, I'm going to ring the chairman before the meeting and say, look, I'm on my way. That conversation will be better than anything you can find on anywhere. Of course it will. Much better. Yeah. And he's, and he's introduced me because he wants me there. Exactly. So I'll ring him again on the way and just say, listen, what, what, what am I coming out with here? What do you need from me? because he wants to steer that in a specific direction. So obviously you, you're going to get it from the horse's mouth. But equally, I've got to research and market the technologies, the people they're in. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, not saying you shouldn't do it, clearly. You know, they're a, they're a partner of a specific technology set. I need to understand that market environment and that ecosystem before I turn up, don't I? Mm, mm, Other clients I've got in that ecosystem, etc., etc. So... Um, he talks a little bit here about understanding what clients want. He was talking about an example of a case study where they invested two hours on Google to collect our own intelligence on the prospect. I do not like the idea of using Google. If you're really serious about research, you should not be using Google. Yeah, I know. You said that before. And I duck, duck, go is what you should be using, not Google. Google will give you the search results they think you want to hear. And people don't realise how skewed search is. So I'm not a big fan of Google for, if I'm serious about my research, if I had to write an essay 
for a dissertation tomorrow, I would not be using Google. I'd be using a really neutral search engine. Um, and I think that if you're desperate to sell to the C-suite, actually what you want is true search, mm. not Google search, which is all about Google making money, uh, flogging ads to people based on what they think you want to hear. Okay. Well, we're not Sorry, Google, don't sue me. We're not going to deal with Google now, are we? <laughs> they were going to ring this week. <laughs> they were going to ring in, ask us to find them 30 salesmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 24% of salespeople were heard referring to the executive... I'm on... I've underlined the actually. Were were heard referring to the executive's business drivers early in the sale. Of these, only one-third, 8% of all salespeople, brought these points up again when explaining their value proposition. Interesting, that, isn't it? Mm. So what he's saying, he's basically saying is really do your homework. He's saying do your homework and then link your solution to it. Yes. Absolutely. And he's And he's saying what you think is deep isn't deep. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting on page 64, he goes on about good customer profiling. I, I just think a lot of people just, just aren't going to be bothered to do that. It's, we talk about this all the time on this show, about the rising tide floating boats. People don't need to at the moment. No, they don't. They don't. They don't, and I think that... Well, Neil Rackham does say that in his forward. Neil Rackham says, when the economy tanks, you'll need this book. Yeah. I mean, I might paraphrase him a little bit there. No, I think you bang right in his forward. He's basically saying you'll, you'll be really thinking about differentiating yourself, whereas at the moment you pip, a lot of people are pitching up. You know, you work for sexy technology company X that's on the ascendancy, Snowflake, or somebody like it. Are they really researching the customer before they show up? No. This, hey, mate, I'm from Snowflake. Are you buying it or what? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure it's probably a bit more complex than that. But in reality, the rising tide floats that boat. Yeah, of course it does, yeah. Okay, um, and then you know he talks about different things like finding out regulatory drivers. Well, well, well it's interesting. Do. So page sixty-six things is what you're referring to. He says the drivers of executive decision making, uh, and then he says, and then he breaks them into different subsections. Yeah, yeah. So he says executive decision making, and he's got a nice circle diagram, which I always like a good diagram. I know you do. And then he talks about the different things. The first thing he talks about is financial drivers. Yeah, and that's one of the drivers of executive decision making. And then he talks about this. But you got to remember with this book, it's based on research. So when you read it, you think, all right, fair enough. He knows what it's on about, this guy. Then it's operational drivers, supplier drivers, business partner drivers. There's eight in total. Yeah, I think he has forgotten about the emotional drivers, the humanity. I said that in the last show. You're saying it was not the purview of the book and it's research well, but at some point research is only as good as the questions the research asked. So, and to be fair, the book is... It's not like we're reading Jeb Blunt or Anthony Anarino here. Say, it's a very dry piece of. Uh, it's a little almost text. academic, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. It's almost I, academic, I like it and then that. it and then it almost verges back into being an Anthony Anarino book at, at certain well, moments. We're going to meet this guy, and we're going to go. This guy's a salesman, straight off the bat. Well, you know how we came by this guy, don't you? No idea. He he wrote us an email about another book that we'd been covering. Did he? To explain to us um, how. Uh, sparse some of the supporting evidence had been behind that oh, particular that piece of work yes i saw that email yeah about a sec- it was another author who, whose book we'd covered um and he he was very clear about how, what rubbish it was and got himself an invite on the show and on the book um some great stuff in here though here's a really good one page 78 i bet you've highlighted this well, oh no we've moved chapter. on we've moved on to a new chapter already we're on to how to find the relevant executive just on the on page 74 actually he talks about different c levels so he talks about chief exec 
chief finance, chief information officers. Yeah. And I think that and the makes, different drivers. Nice graphic that. Really, really good. Really interesting. And again, you know, that's a good chapter. I think. Yeah, and the supporting subsection appendix in the appendix. A, brilliant. Really good. And then we move on to how to find the relevant executive. Your, I put on this. I put this should be a good chapter because, but then I, put, I haven't read it. It doesn't doesn't quite cover LinkedIn, and I didn't really like it. But I think. When people are self-titling themselves, it makes it very difficult to actually truly identify the right person from research alone. Well, how difficult have we found it, for example, with researchers, training new researchers to understand who they're actually going after? Crazy. Everyone's a sales director. Everyone's a sales director or a, or a VP. Nuts. I'm the, what are you? I'm the VP of, Wake, of WFBD... Nuts. Uh, NY. So it's crazy about N-E. it. So we, we I, I have a client, uh, they're not a client, there used to be a client called Avanard, who is this joint venture between Accenture and Microsoft. I did some great work with Avanard, so I thought, all right, I'll have a little crack at Accenture. And why not? Yeah. You know, they, I, I had no reason to get into it, but I had no reason not to. I was going to canvas it. So I put the word director and Accenture into LinkedIn. It was ludicrous. Everyone's the director. Everyone's like... Now, actually, I'm the director of uh, yeah, toilet yeah. cleaning. And, and if I got <laughs> Amazon's, uh, Accenture's accounts... Partner. Accenture's accounts... Yeah. ...and listed the directors, there'd be a lot less than on LinkedIn. And I think that social media and people's own hubris and ego makes it very, very hard to research the right person, I think. Very difficult. Do you think people, do you think people self-proclaim their job titles out of, of hubris and ego? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I mean we're we're tangent. We're going on a tangent here. No, it's very relevant. It's very relevant to this though, because this the chapter of this title is finding the relevant how to executive. Find a relevant executive. I think actually people choose grandiose titles due to a lack of personal self confidence, particularly as salespeople when approaching the C suite. It's interesting. We interview a candidate. I go, yeah, I'm not bothered about title. First thing I write down is bothered about title. I don't want you to think I'm bothered about a title, Mike. Oh, I'm not bothered about a title. That kind of thing. And don't think I'm in a hurry to move jobs. Not <laughs> yeah, but I think a lot of that, the I need a big title that says I'm a VP, is, yeah, well, the kind of people I sell to, they only want to buy off other people with senior seniority. No, they want to buy off people who are relevant, credible and likeable. Interesting, um, isn't it? And, the, and they, they want the big title because actually they don't have the gravitas. And that's something I found this book doesn't mention a lot in C-suite selling. Actually, there is, and I'm going to come to it later on, it's a real rant I'm going to go on, which is about gravitas. Interesting. I don't think gravitas. We'll come. We'll get to it when you get to Real it. gravitas, the ability to just be in the room as a human being. The right, the that's culture. That's not this chapter. We'll come back to it. We will. Okay, there's a great quote here. On page 78, we ask salespeople who cover a portfolio of small and medium-sized enterprises how they reach executives in those companies. By by eliminating times known to be set aside for internal meetings and learning something about the executive's personal schedule, some salespeople are able to discover answers as precise as Tuesday morning from 7.30 to 8.15am or every second Friday at 4pm at the golf course. They have it down to a T, pardon the pun. These salespeople also confirm that in medium-sized companies, it's often the owner-operator executive who turns off the light at night. So a call that is placed after working hours is likely to be answered by the executive directly or a front desk security guard who will typically transfer your call right through. Well, thank you. I've been trying to tell people that for years. 
Well, it's obviously true, isn't it? Yeah. Early and late calls. Well, you know, Johnny, you cannot you you cannot talk to me at eight thirty. You are undisturbable at eight thirty. Undisturbable. Can't, you can't talk to me. You give people the face palm. I'll give you the face palm. I have no interest yeah. in talking to anybody. And you quite like me. Well, I'll well. this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is. It's a, it, it, anyway, a, well, an we interesting actually, chapter. We actually get to the nuts of what should have been the And first. identifying the relevant exec, which is what he's talking about. And the point he's making is, it's got very hard to identify the relevant exec because people have all got big job titles. Yeah. So then what he gets onto is, actually he starts to talk about what in reality is power. Well, he says, to determine the right person to target, focus first on the project or application that's associated with your sales opportunity, and then try to identify the highest ranking executive who stands to gain the most or lose the most as it relates to the outcome of that project or application. Now, I don't think that... I think think that's very different to what he says in Chapter 1, actually. And he's asking a question, who will really evaluate, decide, or approve the decision? It's not a job title thing, it's about... And it... it, I think what he's really getting at, and actually he's talking about uh, later on in the chapter, almost like the fox and th- power-based well, I selling. I know you like power-based selling. I think this is said much better by Miller-Hyman. Go on, what do they, how do they refer oh, to well, it? But Miller-Hyman, who's the economic buyer? That is the person that has the power to say yes when everybody else says no. Yeah, who That's is, who is the technical buyer? I think Miller-Hyman. Who is the this. user buyer? Miller-Hyman covers this much better, I think. Yes. I think you're right, actually, now that you've mentioned it, because they just define it rather than... as rather than This is pretty nebulous about understanding power. Yeah, they have no interest in job titles at Millerheimen. They're saying, who can say yes when everybody else says no? Who has got the ability to sign the cheque? Because what's interesting is, you know, having sold into the legal market, as you did, that, you know, everybody will... And, and all the people that sell into legal software will probably pipe up if they've actually got any spine and disagree with us, which they, they probably won't pipe up in that case, is... They will always say, well, it's partnership. No one person's got the, got the power. There was always one that had always more power one. than the others. There was always one. There's always one. Yes. And it, I think that's also true in public sector. Yeah. Oh, it's not like that. It's a bind. It's, nope. Somebody's more powerful than everybody else. There's somebody who, there is somebody who can write a cheque in every When business. they're evaluating your tender, all the pigs aren't equal. One of the pigs is more equal than the others. That's just Okay, George. Thing. True though, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, it is, and I think and this guy you're right. Saying, uh, uh, you need to find that pig. There is an economic buyer in every account. Absolutely, everyone. And there is, and there is a user buyer, and there are other buying influences well, in se- every account. A lot of the public sector bonds will just hide behind that. So that's not the case, Mike. Say now it is. How can it not be? Someone's in charge. Yes, but his point is, how do you work out who the real economic buyer is? He doesn't really give you what he's... It's a little bit woolly around understanding power and that's influence. that's the point, whereas, whereas Hyman, I think, does tell you. And, uh, and, like, and, what, and his point is right, which is he's saying sometimes it's not always the most obvious. Yes, sometimes, he does say that, yeah. Sometimes it's the guy in the meeting that's quiet, that says nothing, that's just sat there, and you're thinking, who's this geezer in this meeting? Why is he not saying anything? And actually, he's the most powerful person in the room. I had interesting feedback from a candidate recently, and he said, oh, such and such joined the meeting as well. I said, you talk to them much? She said, no, not really. She said, I didn't think it was that important. And I said, yeah, fair enough. Put the phone down. I didn't say it to the candidate. But I sat there thinking, so they brought somebody who's not important into the meeting. (laughs) They went and got him, did they? They went and got somebody who's not important into the meeting. Whilst you were there, it was going well till the guy arrived. That doesn't sound particularly sensible to me. And you haven't worked it out. Well, it was unsuccessful, wasn't he? Because he hadn't worked it out. It's just a stupid thing to say, isn't it? Yeah, it's a a dumbass thing to say. I don't know, but he did. Anyway, 
I don't know. So, sometimes I think there's a, there's a world as simple as money, authority, and need. Absolutely. Money. If you think about it, money, authority, need still not completely irrelevant. No, it's now obviously it's uh, not a gender neutral thing to use, is it? No, it we could get person. told off for it. The man, person, like like package authority need or something. A pan. Yes. Um, but I absolutely agree with you. Money, authority, need. Somebody's got it. Yes. And do you know what I'm dealing with a client at the minute who sell uh, like a payment solution into the construction market. And the guy that set the business up, I've met him. Uh, and, I, and I use the word simple as a compliment to this guy. And I remember years ago having a conversation with him about it. And I said, how do you do it? He said, here's what I do, Mike. He said, I find out who, you know, who's going to make the decision. And he said, I try and keep the decision-making body of people to as small a number of people as possible. Because the more people that get involved, the more the sale slows down and the greater risk I have of not selling anything. Like that. Good advice, that. Yeah. Good advice. He said, why, why involve other people when they don't need to? What's the point? Just keep the, I said to him, what about a I, small nucleus of power I in the to him, deal. I said what about getting IT involved? And almost discourage people from yeah, getting yeah. other people involved I, I said, in the deal. I said, did you sell to IT? He said, no. So why would I get them involved? And for every person you encourage somebody to bring else in, somebody else you bring into a sale, you're, really your sale aren't they? you're effectively encouraging that individual to abdicate some of their responsibility. Just, and, I, and I thought, it's very sage advice. His book wouldn't be very long, this man. <laughs> very short book. and he does get into some really interesting stuff oh, here about, about the dynamics of influence yeah of page 86 Good that, yeah. people gain influence and control from their level of involvement in and value to a discussion or project created by past contributions that still confer a level of credibility and respect by powerful people or brands that are, they are associated with or anointed by and by how popular a person or idea becomes and the level of support and the number of people who back it which is a pretty wordy old well, he summarises it again, doesn't he? He says, what people have done their track record, yeah. what people do now, their, their value. Their value, whom they know, and their ability to drive change. He makes a really cool music reference here, which I really liked, made me chuckle, as Janet Jackson crooned on her third album, coincidentally titled Control. We should all ask ourselves, what have you done for me lately? Which was the uh, chorus. Um, I, I did enjoy that. I thought, good music reference, nice to see. Um, and then he talks, he breaks that down into track record, Value yeah. network, and he gives this Chinese reference of Guanji, doesn't he? I don't know what page you're on. I'm, I'm on another bit actually. Eighty nine. All right, okay, you just a bit behind me. Mm. <laughs> Said the actress to the bishop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's good. He, he references the Chinese a lot, doesn't he? Yeah. On page ninety two. He said, he's, I just underlined this a little bit. He said, some people in high ranking positions are revealed to have little influence at all. And then he goes on and talks about presidential elections and stuff like that. We deal with a lot of clients where sometimes you think, he's a senior guy, but he's got no power. Oh, yeah, quite often, yeah. Particularly in recruitment. You do, you do, you find it a lot in the large enterprise. If yeah. somebody said to me, why wouldn't I go and work for a large enterprise? It's because you have quite a good job title. You have loads of responsibility, but no authority at all. Yeah. We deal with guys where you think, well, you're the VP for Emir and you run Europe, Middle East and Africa. But actually, no. What actually happens is you carry the can for the success or failure of the number, but you, have, board, you? but you have absolutely no ability to really influence it other than doing your team up on a Monday morning. Um, but do you have the ability to uh, make a hiring decision? Not really. Uh, actually, that's down to some guy in talent acquisition who's going to determine which recruiters you do and don't use. 
budget, whatever, and you realise actually this guy's not really very powerful in this or, in this organisation. And actually, the guy in talent acquisition who's twenty. Well, we've got a client, haven't we? One a, a big global corporation where probably one of the most pa- and, and we had a bit of a do about this in the summer. I said that young person in talent acquisition is one of the most powerful people in that company right now. As a bottleneck to their recruitment process. Probably, because it's very common, isn't it? Yeah. It says here, people without influence lack the power to work outside the boundaries set by others and must view po- policies as rules that they c- that cannot be broken. You see that a lot, particularly in the big enterprise players. Yeah, and he, he does spend a lot of time in this chapter exemplifying the concept of the hidden influencer, doesn't he? Yes. Now, actually, With not- sort of hooky examples about... Ronald Reagan and, and stuff. They're not hooky examples. They're perfectly valid examples, actually. But he really illustrates the point. He's really trying to say to you, look, sometimes you're it's the hidden influencer that is the actual C-level exec that's worth selling to. I don't to. know why I didn't say that. Well, you would say that, but then you'd never get a publishing deal because your books would only be about 15... Short. Would be about 1,500 words long and in bullet points. Yes, you're absolutely right, yeah. Do, do you know All what I mean? I'd read more of them. Yeah, absolutely. And you and I have an account where the CFO is the most powerful oh, man in the business. Without I don't think I even know the name of the CEO in that account, and that's a big account for us. Yeah, absolutely right. And actually, right. the CFO basically runs that company. Of course it does, yeah. And everybody defers to him for everything. Mm. So, but if you if you didn't know that account, you would profile it, and you'd go straight after the CEO. Of course we do. You wouldn't go after that fellow. Absolutely. You'd never think to go after him. But that's the point I was making about research. You research in a lot of ways, you know, it's fine using duck, duck, jump or whatever. (laughs) But actually at some point, you know, I think one of your best sources of of research is... Reality. Yeah, well, you know, I never really liked Game of Thrones. I watched it because my wife watched it. But who was the most powerful person in it? At one point it was Varys. Varys. Is that his name? Varys. Yeah, I always thought Varys would be the one that would win. Yeah, yeah, I always thought that actually. Um, you know, why is that? It's because actually, with his he little had the birds. Ear, well, he had the ear of all the people, so he knew what was going on. Yes, he no, was the kingmaker, really. No, I don't think they had Google in King's Landing. No. But he didn't need it. No. Well, he had his little birds. Correct, yeah. Yes. Anyway, that's the end of this show, unless you've got some more stuff to talk about. You seem to have written a lot. I did. You can see I've, I've actually uh, written an awful lot. And again, good chapter summary. But in reality, I think that's the end of this week's show. It is, yeah. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Remember to check us out online. Check out what you like. If you like what you're hearing, put a review on iTunes. We love you. Goodbye. <laughs>